0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to Cutting Carbon. This season, we're talking about the infrastructure needed for the energy transition. Now, other episodes are talking about the physical infrastructure. In this episode, we're talking about what we call the political infrastructure, that is, the policies put in place by governments to help accelerate that transition. Today, we're going to specifically focus on policies in the U.S., and we're joined by our special guest, Dr. Jennifer Wilcox from the U.S. Department of Energy. Dr. Wilcox shared lots of great insights with us, and as a result, the episode's a little longer than usual. We hope you'll listen to the entire episode, but if there are specific topics of interest to you, please check out the show notes where we've listed some key topics and the associated time index for those topics, allowing you to jump right to those portions of the conversation. Again, thanks for listening to Cutting Carbon, and let's jump right into the podcast.
1: And so the bipartisan infrastructure law is really providing roughly $62 billion to the Department of Energy over the next five years to build out the critical infrastructure needed over the next 10 years to build those first-of-a-kind demonstrations to achieve our clean energy technology targets.
0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and I'm joined as always, by my co-host,
2: Brian Gutnick. Brian, good day. Jeff, it's always great to be here. We've got a fantastic guest and an important topic to cover today. Let's get into it.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited, Brian, because again, right, we're talking about infrastructure this season, and we're talking a lot about the physical elements of infrastructure, pipelines and grid and energy storage and all these things, the building blocks. But the truth is, these systems aren't built in a vacuum. They require significant amounts of investments, billions of dollars, billions of euros. And so these projects have to make financial sense. But we know that many new technologies don't make that hurdle, right? They've developed the new technology. They're not cost competitive yet. But we need those technologies to grow and to accelerate. But they don't have the scale. We're not seeing the scale of manufacturing. So how do we solve this problem? And this is one place where governments can really play such a critical role in helping bridge the gap between technologies that are important and have an important role, but haven't yet reached, let's say, the the point or the tipping point of making economic sense only on their own. And so that acceleration or adoption of those nascent technologies really is critical. And so I'm so pleased that that's kind of what we're talking about on today's episode: is the role that governments can play in moving these forward. So. I'm pleased today that our guest is Dr. Jennifer Wilcox. She is the, I'm going to get this right, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management at the U.S. Department of Energy. Dr. Wilcox, Jen, thank you so very much for joining us on Cutting Carbon.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I want to start just at the very beginning and maybe help you provide a little more detail to our listeners around, again, we talk about the physical infrastructure, but not everyone considers policy as part of infrastructure So how do you see the relationship between policy and energy, and why does that matter?
1: Sure. So yeah, this is a great question. So to me, there's two pieces. There's the infrastructure that you talked about in your introduction, the actual physical infrastructure. And then there's the piece of the policy. What are the policy levers that we can put into place such that not just the government pays for the first of a kind— but that we can allow the private sector to enable the private sector to pay for the second and the third and the fourth of a kind. And so those policy levers are going to be critical. And so maybe today we'll talk a little bit about what some of those levers look like, but we've got the federal tax credit 45Q as an example. And this is really associated with carbon management broadly. The critical piece about carbon management is that it's a very broad topic and there are a lot of different sectors And so there are some sectors of carbon management that we've actually already demonstrated from ethanol, for instance, carbon capture from ethanol. The CO2 is very concentrated. And so the reality is is that this federal tax credit, and this is probably true for other examples as well, but it's priced right for some parts of the carbon management portfolio. It's not priced right for others, and so that's why the two elements are critical. The incentives to build the first-of-a-kind infrastructure, the capital investments for the first-of-a-kind infrastructure, but then the policy lever for the second and third and fourth, and ultimately getting to the wide-scale deployment that's required to meet climate goals. And if you only have one, if you only pay for the first-of-a-kind infrastructure, and it makes it really difficult even though you move down the cost curve by building that first of a kind you may not be at a price point that's still economic so that policy lever in this case a carrot a federal tax credit is really what enables the private sector to be able to build the further demonstrations that are required
2: great that, that's great dr wilcox can we maybe back up for a minute and Share with our listeners a little understanding of the DOE structure, your organization. What is it that the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management is responsible for and where it fits within the broader DOE?
1: Absolutely. So fossil energy and carbon management, and we carried out a reorganization, actually, in my first year. My first year on the job, I was acting assistant secretary of the office, which was really the role was overseeing all investments that go out the door, shaping those investments. And so this reorganization that we carried out was critical because what we needed to recognize, is it's not just about the fossil energy and our dependence, it's about how can we reduce the pollution, how can we reduce the greenhouse gases that are associated with how we produce fossil fuels, but also how we use fossil fuels. And that reduction of greenhouse gases on the downstream side of how we use is really all about carbon management. It's about how do we capture carbon at a point source to avoid it from entering the atmosphere to begin with. It's about how do we take it out of the air, recognizing that those legacy emissions are also critically important to achieving net zero. And then it's once we capture all this CO2, what do we do with it? How do we get rid of it in a way that it doesn't come back and be part of some of the climate challenges that we have? And so it's very much looking at these investments. And so in our Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management, our day job is about investing in R&D. And so R&D is really looking at technologies beyond paper, So these aren't just like ideas on paper, but they could be ideas that are really looking at the scale of lab research, could be in the field. So we're really starting to actually, a technology not in a vacuum, it's really about an integrated system. And it's about being able to do measurements that ultimately lead to costs, whether it's operating costs uh, associated with the energy required to do what you're trying to do, Or the capital investment, capital costs of like the sizing of the device. So all of those pieces are critical at that R and D stage to be able to be transparent about what are the costs going to be as we scale this up. And so some may say it's investments about really getting technologies through that valley of death, you know, stage whether or not they're actually going to make it to demonstration. Figuring that out and answering those questions and de-risking so that you don't end up failing at the demonstration scale. Now. Our day job has changed recently. So that was before the bipartisan infrastructure law. And so the bipartisan infrastructure law is really providing roughly $62 billion to the Department of Energy over the next five years to build out the critical infrastructure needed over the next 10 years to build those first-of-a-kind demonstrations to achieve our clean energy technology targets. Fossil energy and carbon management, the bill provisions are really anything that touches this topic of carbon management. And so there's a number of provisions where the technical expertise from our team provides insight into shaping the dollars that go out the door for those first-of-a-kind demonstrations. And we're working with a new office, Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, which is, again, just like we did a reorganization in fossil energy and carbon management, the broader Department of Energy also did a realignment, recognizing that there is this once-in-a-life potential opportunity to have these kinds of infrastructure dollars. But we don't want it to be once-in-a-life. We want to recognize that we want these boxes, these opportunities for the Department of Energy to be truly helping to achieve solutions, that we may down the road need more dollars associated with new demonstrations. And so we created a broader office, an undersecretary's office for infrastructure. So previously, before the bill funds, we had an undersecretary's office for innovation and science, but again, more about the R&D investments. And we recognized that we needed this other office for where these large demonstrations will reside, and that we need new expertise associated with project oversight, business, administration, these types of skill sets that come with very large projects. And so this was built out. And so our office provides, in addition to our day job of the annual appropriations and investing in R&D, and our our budget is roughly about a $1 billion associated with that. But now we have $12 billion from the infrastructure law, all associated with equities and carbon management. And so our job now, our staff are really (laughs) dual-hatted. and providing the technical expertise to the office, the office of Clean Energy Demonstrations to try and make sure that these projects are really cited in a way that de-risks them to the best of our ability.
0: So since you've talked about the the bipartisan infrastructure law, I want to dig into that a little more. I know there's a number of funding announcements that are coming out, and so it's really great and exciting to see that law going from what was a bill, now to a law, to the Department of Energy realizing that. But it really touches on a number of topics. It touches on hydrogen, on carbon capture, on direct air capture. Can you maybe give a little flavor of where the DOE sees, how that's going to go transform, let's say... America, I know the current administration, the Biden administration with Secretary Granholm have very specific goals they have laid out for the United States in terms of net zero. So help me connect the dots here between the infrastructure law and those national goals.
1: So first, I'm just going to say that for those that are listening, if there's an interest in learning more, we actually have a strategic vision document that we released in April last year. So you can always go to the FECM website under resources. And it's really one of the first links there. And so that's a great resource. And it talks about our vision over the next five years, over the next 10 years, the investments that we are really steering toward in order to achieve some of these goals that that we're talking about. So, But first off, all of the equities that have to do with the broad area of carbon management and the infrastructure law, you mentioned hydrogen. And so hydrogen hubs is one, and there's a FOA funding opportunity announcement on the street uh, that was released later in September, I believe. And so if those are interested, please double-click on that and take a look. Again, you can access that through our website and also the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations website at DOE. But just generally speaking, $8 billion associated with building out hydrogen hub infrastructure. And at least one of those projects is going to be associated with fossil equities. And so one could imagine using natural gas as a feedstock for hydrogen production. One of the things I think that's important is a thread through all of our investments is that in terms of the metrics and proposals that are submitted, really wanting to make sure that we are achieving climate impacts to the best of our ability, maximizing reduction of greenhouse gases. And so one thing that's really critical in terms of thinking about hydrogen production from say, natural gas, is that you also have to think about how the natural gas is produced. And a a really significant effort of our office is focused on methane quantification and methane mitigation associated with the production of natural gas. And so ensuring that it's produced in a way that not only minimizes methane emissions, but also just environmental impacts associated with production, making sure that there's not induced seismicity as you're producing, say, natural gas from unconventional resources like shales, making sure that the groundwater is protected. And so all of these pieces, it's, it's broader. It's not just about greenhouse gases. It's also about the life cycle of the production of natural gas that feeds into, say, the steam methane reformer. And so then now you start to walk along that life cycle of the natural gas And you look at the facility where the hydrogen is actually produced, and you focus on that. Today, we have a project that we have invested in. It was through the Obama administration, and this is hydrogen production from steam methane reforming. It's Port Arthur, Texas. And in this case, we're capturing CO2 from the steam methane reformer. But one also has to ask, what is the carbon intensity of the steam that's produced that goes into the reformer? Today it's very easy for us, easy because we at least have this demonstration, but we have the technology to separate CO2 from more concentrated streams, like for instance from reforming of natural gas. But when you look at the facility wide, you recognize that there are more emissions than just the process emissions from producing hydrogen from steam methane reforming. And so you've got to really draw a big box in making sure that If you're looking at the end of the day at the carbon intensity of the hydrogen that you're producing, then you need to understand what is the emissions facility-wide, not just unit-wide. And so I think a lot of the industry now is taking a step back and saying, okay, well, what are our other ways, even if we're starting with natural gas and recognizing we need to take into account the environmental and climate impacts of the supply chain, upstream, midstream, all the way to this facility, we also need to recognize the inputs into the facility itself. And there are other approaches outside of the conventional steam methane reforming. Like for instance, there's autothermal reforming where you can get deeper decarbonization. There's also firing with oxygen so that you can have more easy separation of the CO2. And so I think this is what industry is looking at more broadly from the fossil side. Now stepping away from natural gas for a moment, Another carbon-hydrogen feedstock that you could imagine that looks a little bit like some hydrocarbons is biomass. And so looking at biomass as a feedstock for hydrogen production is another interesting area. But you do have to recognize that you have a pollution profile, and it's not just about the carbon and the methane. It's about when we make hydrogen from feedstocks that consist of carbon and hydrogens that come out of the Earth, there may be other aspects there. So, with biomass, we have to think about the sulfur, we have to think about the nitrogen that's in that feedstock itself. Finally, when you are burning in air, you recognize you have nitrogen there. And so, with hydrogen production from these different processes, we have to also make sure that in forming the hydrogen, and when it comes to a biomass feedstock, that if it's gasification or if it's you know in gasification you produce hydrogen from biomass that we have to make sure we understand the pollution profile across the biomass and then finally and this is important as as well no matter what color the hydrogen is whether it's blue or pink if it's nuclear or green if it's renewables when you combust hydrogen and you're doing that in air which contains nitrogen you do produce NOx emissions which is a precursor to acid rain and so we have to make sure that we have technologies in place to reduce NOx emissions. And so that's hydrogen. And so I think when you look at the hydrogen hubs and when you look at everything that we're trying to do, there's not just greenhouse gas emissions, but climate and environmental impacts, other co-pollutants that we have to consider across the entire value chain of hydrogen. And that's hopefully some of the responsible work that applicants will capture when they submit. And aside from hydrogen, Another effort is the integrated carbon capture and storage hubs. And so here, this is another opportunity. But it's important to think about, in this case, it's integrated. So that means that the carbon capture is integrated to the storage piece. And the other piece that's important is in the law, in the bipartisan infrastructure law, there's at least six projects that will be funded, two associated with the industrial sector, two associated with natural gas-fired power plants, and two associated with coal-fired power plants. And so that's no secret, that's actually language in the law itself. And so that's work that we need to be thinking about, again, in a really robust and responsible way. The piece that should get also more attention, I think oftentimes people are excited about the hydrogen hubs and integrated CCS demos, but there's also $2.5 billion associated with storage and validation. And this is significant because what it means is it means that the government is really subsidizing the build out of geologic storage of CO2. I think today when we look at 45Q, this is an opportunity and we see the bump up in 45Q to $85 a ton. There's an opportunity there for the private sector to do carbon capture from some of the more concentrated streams, whether it's hydrogen or bioethanol or natural gas processing. But the big question is, is where are you going to put the CO2 at the end of the day? And so building out the infrastructure in a way that's not just in one region of the United States, but in many regions of the United States, allows for those point sources, where the CO2 emissions are, combined with a bump up of 45Q, just allows for the infrastructure for the offtake of the CO2. And so at $2.5 billion, and by law, We're looking at each of the sites having a capacity to store 50 million tons over its life. And what we think, and this is in our strategic vision too, what we think is that with that type of investment, the amount of CO2 that we could potentially store per year is roughly, it's on the order of tens of millions of CO2 injection per year, somewhere between 60 on the low end to 100 on the high end. It depends on the characterization of the formations, lots of things. But ultimately, if we can build out that capacity over the next five to 10 years, and you've got the couple to the bump up in 45Q, we're gonna to start to see a lot of activity in the space.
0: One note, just because not all of our listeners are going to be experts in the U.S. tax code. So 45Q is the provision in the U.S. tax code providing a federal tax subsidy for permanent sequestration of CO2. And there's now a parallel with hydrogen 45V. And those are really great. The bump up, as you said, up to $85 per ton for CO2 that's permanently sequestered.
1: Correct. And I'll just add to that. Yeah. and, And these bump ups were through the Inflation Reduction Act. So a second piece of legislation that was recently passed. And in addition to the $80 per ton for industrial sources, which include power plants, cement plants, pulp and paper, steel production. So in addition, there's also $180 per ton specifically for direct air capture. And so that's another, haven't talked about it yet, but I know we will. But that's another exciting piece of legislation too.
2: So, Dr. Wilcox, why you mentioned this increase from 50 to 85 uh, with 45Q and the parallel for direct air capture. Why was that change needed and what is your hope that the effect of that is going to be?
1: Sure. So, when you look at $50 per ton and you look at the sectors that we have demonstrated, you hear different groups, by the way, you say, some groups are saying, oh, it's new and novel carbon capture. And other groups are saying, no, it's not. We've had this technology since the 1930s. And that's true. The first patent was filed in 1930 by Bottoms. Um, and it was to separate CO2 ultimately at refineries. And it was that CO2 that we use for the food and beverage industry today. But the big piece here is, is that how CO2 is generated by our dependence on fossil fuels, in addition to our dependence on industrial sectors like cement and steel, pulp and paper. We're dependent upon all of these things, and CO2 happens to be a byproduct, a greenhouse gas that's emitted as we are either burning fossil fuels or heating limestone to really high temperatures. And that chemical reaction releases CO2 into the atmosphere. And so we now are just recognizing the amount of CO2 that we have to manage in order to achieve our climate goals. And we've never, ever had to do it at this scale before, at this gigaton scale. And we've really focused on certain sectors. And so we're pretty good at separating CO2 from the processing of natural gas where it comes out of the earth in a higher concentration, even at pressure. So it's pretty easy to do that separation. We've been doing it for decades because you can't put natural gas in a pipeline before you separate the CO2 out. It comes out at high purity in an ethanol plant. It comes out at fairly high purity at a steam methane reformer. And so we know how to do this. And so the original 45Q at $50 a ton was priced right for those industries. Now, the limitation, I feel, why that didn't go forward more than it did is because there's the big question of how do you then manage the CO2? What's the market? Who wants it? And that geologic storage piece There's a lot of rocks that still need to be characterized. We need to make sure and ensure that formations are suitable for CO2 sequestration. And so we at the Department of Energy are working very closely with the Environmental Protection Agency to help permit, provide the technical expertise to help in permitting the types of wells that are required to inject CO2 deep underground. Those are class six wells. And so all of that work needs to move forward in order for the carbon capture to move forward. And those are two different pieces. There's the sequestration and there's the capture. Now, with the combination of the infrastructure law, the $2.5 billion for building out the capacity and so that the industry doesn't have to worry about that element now. We build out the capacity, there's the offtake, it exists. And then, aside from the more concentrated streams, you've got all these other dilute sectors that we haven't tackled yet and haven't even demonstrated yet. Natural gas-fired power plants is one critical area. And so we're, we're dependent upon natural gas in all kinds of ways in the United States. Power is a big piece. Industrial heating is another piece. And home heating, commercial and residential heating is another piece. Those are a little bit trickier because they're very distributed. But when you look at power plants, you have these large facilities with multiple units within them and so we need to be able to now demonstrate the technology on those units. And we need to be really clear about what the costs are going to be. The first of a kind $85 probably is actually not high enough. So that's why it's so important that we have the bipartisan infrastructure law to pay for at least two of these first of a kind demonstrations to be very transparent about the costs and what that's going to take. So through those type of capital investments that we have, we can pay up to 50% of that capital investment, and you still have access to 45Q. So if the government is paying 50% of the capital investment of these first-of-a-kind demonstrations on a natural gas-fired power plant, and you have the the $85 a ton combined, that will help to make these first-of-a-kind economic. But the question is the third-of-a-kind. And I think in the third-of-a-kind, the technology may look a little different, we also have the Loan Programs Office, which allows for more of these opportunities to get the financing lined up. The other piece is a cement plant. One thing about carbon capture, it's not a blanket solution, it doesn't work everywhere. It doesn't make sense if you have a retiring plant. It doesn't make sense if the plant is polluting in a lot of different ways and you haven't fixed that first. But carbon capture is a really great solution for cement. So cement, In that process, often the fuel itself, it could be biomass, it could be fossil, it could be even waste material like tires from the region. Oftentimes the kilns will fire all kinds of different fuels, but a big bulk of the CO2 emissions is from the limestone that you're heating up, and that's just a chemical reaction. Now, the fuel and the limestone are all mixed in the same unit to have heat transfer and efficiency gains. And so when you retrofit at a cement plant carbon capture you're not just capturing the fuel emissions you're also capturing the process emissions and so you're able to get deep decarbonization across that cement facility and so two of the projects will be associated with industry let's see what happens we don't know yet but the hope is is that we'll see some exciting projects in this sector and the thing that i think also is missed about cement exhaust is in those kilns, because it's a mixture of, of chemical reaction CO2 and an exhaust stream, you actually have CO2 concentrations much higher than you do from a power plant. That's just combustion emissions. And so when you look at a comparison in cost, at the end of the day for nth of a kind, the carbon capture from a cement plant should be cheaper than from a natural gas power plant. And so my hope is that $85 is priced right for the nth of a kind for this industry. And so hopefully that provides a little bit more detail there. Perfect.
0: So, Dr. Wilcox, as I'm thinking about this two-tier process, right, investments on the capital infrastructure and investments on the the tax subsidy to help bridge the gap to the nth of a kind, sounds like not just for carbon capture, but I know we're doing the same thing for hydrogen. So I guess the same philosophy applies. You need the infrastructure to produce and move the hydrogen, but then there's the how do we then bridge that gap to the nth of a kind? Because we know that today, if the goal is hydrogen with a very low carbon footprint, Today, the hydrogen is going to be very expensive, and we just frankly don't have the network to move it around. We've done some demonstration projects with customers, and just being able to get enough hydrogen, green hydrogen, to run a small gas turbine is very challenging today. Regardless of the economics, just the supply chain of getting that hydrogen is very challenging.
1: Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. And I think we do have to ask the question, and there's been a lot of studies that are out there, too, of what sectors will hydrogen truly play a role in, in helping to decarbonize. And I think because of, there are challenges with moving hydrogen. And the other piece I think that's often overlooked, and this is work that has come out recently with the Environmental Defense Fund, is that if hydrogen leaks into the atmosphere, we often think about it as from the safety aspect or from an economic aspect, because you don't want to lose hydrogen. But it turns out that hydrogen also reacts with OH, hydroxyl, in the atmosphere. And that OH also is the mechanism that breaks down methane. And so what that means is if you have these competing pathways with OH and if hydrogen is reacting, it means it's, it's prolonging the life of methane in the atmosphere, which is bad. And so it is an indirect greenhouse gas, hydrogen is, and so we've got to make sure that as we're building out the infrastructure, that we don't just contain hydrogen from a safety and from an economic perspective, but we are also containing hydrogen to prevent further warming and unintended consequences associated with that. And so as we design infrastructure for moving and using hydrogen, we have to make sure that it's designed leak tight we have to make sure that we have sensing capabilities that are orders of magnitude lower than what we have for safety and economic purposes today. And that's all gonna be really important. And so I think that that underlies the question of what sectors do we anticipate depending on hydrogen to help to decarbonize. I often go to the industrial heating because I feel like the question is, should consumers be handling hydrogen on a daily basis? Can we do it in a way that's more controlled at larger facilities, you know, where it's managed in a way that's ensuring safety, that's ensuring consistency in how it's handled and operated? And so I do think there's an opportunity, for instance, at refineries to play a role since a lot of refineries today are already producing hydrogen. And we could imagine when you look at refineries, there's just so many different emission streams because a lot of process heating. And imagine that If those processes could use hydrogen as their heating source. Again, we have the challenge of NOx reductions, and we have to make sure that we have those controls in place to prevent NOx emissions with hydrogen. But I think that this could be a really good piece of the puzzle for decarbonizing refineries, which are a really big, challenging area, and also come with this other challenge of just a broad pollution portfolio. And so, hydrogen compared to other, like hydrocarbons or even a residual fuel gas, which is often used for heating at refineries, hydrogen is much cleaner, and also you have the one pollution that you have to worry about, which is the NOx. And so other areas I know that is also of interest is thinking about, again, hard-to-decarbonize sectors like long-haul trucking is, I think, another area that it could be controlled in terms of the handling But it really is just about strategy and thinking about where best, again, there's no blanket solution. There's no one thing that's gonna solve it all. It's a portfolio. It's a portfolio across, within a given region, it's a portfolio which makes this so complicated. But I think we do have to ask that question of where it plays best a role.
2: So, Dr. Wilcox, we talked about the use of hydrogen across multiple sectors, the capturing of carbon everywhere from cement to the less concentrated generation technologies like gas and then even direct air capture. Are there other disruptive technologies that you're excited about that are coming down the road that also may need this nurturing and investment to maybe get to that next level?
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll I'll back up a bit, because we've mentioned direct air capture, but we really haven't talked much about it. One thing I want to mention is that direct air capture is one approach in a broader portfolio of carbon dioxide removal approaches. And so stepping back, what is carbon dioxide removal? It is a different tool than carbon capture from a power plant or a cement plant. It is... A tool that allows us to take CO2 out of the accumulated pool of CO2 in the atmosphere. And some think of it as, oh, it's a way to go back. It's a way to remove legacy emissions. That's true, but we're not even there yet. We have so much work to do before we start to relax and think about legacy emissions, unfortunately. And I think it's really key to first understand what net zero greenhouse gases means. And so, what we need to also recognize is that when we emit CO2 in the atmosphere, roughly half of our global emissions are taken up by the oceans in the terrestrial biosphere, at the expense of the oceans, as we see increasing ocean acidification. But we are relying on those natural systems to take care of half of our pollution roughly every year, globally. And we're also recognized that as we continue to rely on those natural solutions at the expense of the ocean's health, we also recognize that the land sector is changing. As the globe is warming, we're seeing reversals in sinks. We're seeing forest fires. We're seeing a lot of those sinks becoming sources of CO2. So I think we have to really be careful on how we're depending on the natural systems to take care of half of our pollution. That's the first piece of this The next piece is just recognizing what net zero means. Net zero means that we've got to decarbonize everything that we possibly can to avoid emissions from going into the atmosphere. But we also have to be realistic and recognize that we aren't shutting our lights off today. And that for that reason, there's going to be emissions that go into the atmosphere and we have to recognize we have to take that CO2 back out because that's what net zero is. What we put out, we've got to take back. And so, and that land sector that takes care of half is just changing. And so I see carbon removal. We no longer have an option. We have to invest in parallel. And carbon removal is today is the critical tool to counterbalancing truly hard to decarbonize sectors, not ones that we have the technologies. I don't want to see carbon removal as used as a way to continue emitting carbon from a natural gas-fired power plant where we have the bill and we have the IRA bump up in 45Q. We have all the pieces of the puzzle to decarbonize those sectors. And we have the pieces of the puzzle to decarbonize cement, I think, I strongly feel. So you look at other sectors, agriculture, and you look at aviation, and you look at shipping and long haul trucking, we don't have solutions today. And so I do think that carbon removal needs to be able to counterbalance those types. And when you add it all up, it still adds up to gigatons annually. It's still a lot. Now in 2050, if we're successful in achieving net zero in the US, then we can start to think about legacy and going back. But we're not gonna start touching those historical emissions until we first achieve net zero. And I think that that's really important. And so when I get excited, and am I excited about new technologies that are on the horizon, What I want to do is I want to think, yes, direct air capture is great. And we have, again, pieces of the puzzle in place. We have $3.5 billion in the infrastructure law to build at least four direct air capture hubs in the United States. And we have a bump up in 45Q to $180 per ton. There's voluntary markets out there willing to pay to help offset their scope three emissions. So corporations are doing that. We've got all of this today. But we need to expand and recognize direct air capture is not a silver bullet, even in the portfolio of carbon removal. We need to do better about investing in improved forest management so that our forests don't go from sinks to sources. We need to figure out better agricultural practices so that our soils can store carbon in them. You know, we need to think about the rocks that are abundant in the Earth's crust, like calcium and magnesium, that we can look at accelerated weathering approaches, and they can store carbon better and faster. And so there's a broad portfolio. By the way, if we can figure out direct ocean capture by adding alkalinity, we can also have the amazing co-benefit of improving the health of our oceans. And so a lot of ecosystem benefits associated with carbon removal that are well beyond direct air capture. So I get excited about rising up these other approaches, having equity across the CDR portfolio, and making sure that we have the tools in place to be able to show in a transparent way the monitoring, the reporting, the verification, like we do with direct air capture coupled to a class six well. Like we need all of that in place for the broad range of approaches so that 45Q isn't just enabling direct air capture, it's enabling direct ocean capture, it's enabling improved forest management. That would be a dream for me at the end of the day.
0: So Dr. Wilcox, that I think provides this really macro-scale view on the critical need of, of this portfolio. We need carbon dioxide removal technologies, not for some... As you said, legacy removal, we're still emitting CO2 today, and the earth is helping, but we need to do our part of that as well. We need these technologies. We need to remove carbon emissions where we have the technology, whether it's from hydrogen production plants, combined cycle plants fired to natural gas, cement systems, and so these entire ecosystems. So Maybe the final question I'll leave you with is, that's a lot to do. The clock is ticking very loudly. Many of us do hear it on a daily basis of what we need to do. What do you think are the biggest challenges? What really is going to slow us down from being able to do all these great things? What are the challenges? Because we've got some technology pieces, but what do we need to go do and do faster?
1: Yeah, well, I think you're asking, I mean, this is a catalysis, the field of catalysis, right? So what you're asking is, number one, we have to identify where all of the barriers are. And then we have to figure out either how to remove the barriers or find another way around the barriers. That's why I relate it to catalysis. And so I think... One barrier that I've seen in just my year, over a year and a half now, is that oftentimes we develop technologies in a vacuum. All the way from on the piece of paper where the idea begins, through the patent process, through the lab, through the field. And what I mean in a vacuum is as I, as I mean that we have been ignoring the fact that the technology is gonna be demonstrated in a community. That there needs to be an understanding of what the technology is, from the community's perspective and that there needs to be, if we want communities to be excited about what we're trying to do and embrace it, there needs to be transparent benefits. And oftentimes what that means is recognizing, because a lot of what we're talking about is the industry making a shift, industry transitioning or transforming in some cases. And so I think what's really critically important is recognizing Number one, where I sit, there are benefits, but they just haven't been communicated that well in the past. And so some of what we're looking at, for instance, when you look at a direct air capture plant, you recognize that how the, the actual chemistry works is that it's selective to CO2, but there are other acid gases in the atmosphere too that are actually stronger than CO2, like SOx and NOx in that you're not just scrubbing the air of CO2, you're scrubbing them of other acid gases too. You have to, or you'd never capture the CO2. That's so dilute. If you have a separation process and also you have particulate matter in the atmosphere that could compromise the selectivity of the material to separate CO2, you actually have to have air filtration ahead of the CO2 capture technology. And so the benefits there are is you have an opportunity not just to scrub the air of CO2, you have the opportunity to scrub the air of other pollution as well. And so you could imagine siting near ports, you could imagine siting near highways, you could imagine siting in regions where you have uncontrolled emissions today, and therefore you're saying, here's the baseline of pollution in this region. After direct air capture, we actually have reduced that significantly And that is being transparent about the technology, the science, and then also steering the companies that are designing that work to do this in a way that's truly achieving benefits. And I think that's a win-win for everybody. And we can design these things not in a vacuum, but we can design them as we're building them fresh and new for the first time in this way. And I think that 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 is something that will help to remove barriers as we move into communities and recognize that this is just work we have to do in order to achieve our climate goals,
0: Dr. Wilcox, one of the things that that as we think about the broad spectrum of the work that's happening, the Inflation Reduction Act, the hubs, just a lot of work that's going to happen in the U.S. in in this decarbonization space. A lot of it focusing on proposals coming to the DOE, whether it be for DAC or carbon capture, the integrated carbon capture, hydrogen. That puts a lot of burden on the US government to support and do. Does the DOE, does the federal government have the right tools in place to to do this in the timelines that have been set?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. I do think we do have the tools in place. In terms of workforce within the DOE, we're leveraging the national labs and all the technical expertise. And the nice thing about the national labs is they're regionally placed. And so a lot of, when we look at these projects of geologic storage, it's across the United States, not just in one region. And so it's really important that we're leveraging the labs and their expertise, which is what we're doing from that perspective. But I think the bigger barrier isn't whether or not do we have enough people in place to help process applications. It's really about making sure that we're doing on-the-ground work to teach and be transparent about what the technology means when we do geologic storage deep underground, what it means to go through all the different phases till you finally make it to the stage where you actually are applying for a Class 6 permit to drill a well and inject CO2, because there's a, a set of steps that are required to even get to that phase. And there are go, no-go decision points that DOE makes along each one of those lines, each one of those stages. But the key is, is that we are in the communities, we're discussing it, we are transparent about what tools we have to ensure that it's safe and that we know Uh, and have the expertise to get ahead of any of the challenges that the community is concerned about, whether it's air pollution or whether it's groundwater contamination or induced seismicity, uh, that we absolutely have the tools in place to ensure that these projects are done in a safe and in a way that's ultimately delivering benefits to communities.
0: Great. Dr. Wilcox, this has been an amazing conversation. We've covered just, just an amazing amount of ground. So... On behalf of of Brian and the entire podcast team, we want to thank you for being just so gracious in in answering these questions and, and providing us with just these great insights. Thank you so very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Thanks for listening to today's conversation. If you're interested in learning more about the programs that Dr. Wilcox talked about from the U.S. Department of Energy, check out our show notes. As always, if you have questions for Brian or myself on today's topic or any of our previous episodes, please don't hesitate to drop us an email at cutting.carbon.ge.com. Again, for the entire Cutting Carbon podcast team, thanks for listening. This is Cutting Carbon.